0: Good morning, good afternoon and good evening and welcome to the Tangle podcast, a place where you get views from across the political spectrum, some reasonable debate and independent thinking without some of the hysterical nonsense you find everywhere else. I am your host, Isaac Saul. And today I'm very excited about our guest. Randy Shrewsbury. Randy is the founder and current executive director of the Institute for Criminal Justice Training Reform. He is also a former police officer, crash reconstruction investigator and certified fire and explosion investigator. He spent 30 years in both the public and the private sector criminal justice field. And he's done all sorts of basic training, police training in Ohio, South Carolina, Indiana, as well as hundreds of advanced trainings and investigations and other specialized areas in law enforcement. Randy has basically done it all. Randy, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate the time.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. I, I'm enjoy I'm looking forward to the conversation.
0: There is a ton we could touch on, but I think maybe the most interesting place to start would be just to hear a little bit about your organization. Uh, you know, I think from my readers and listeners' perspectives, when people talk about police rep- reform, I think a lot of people imagine activists and abolitionists and criminologists and op-ed writers and not a ton of people's minds immediately go to former police officers. So you certainly have an interesting background. I'd love to hear about you know why you started the institute, what you guys are up to, and what your mission is.
1: Sure. So um, we are the nation's only nonprofit advocacy organization that that addresses reform through how do we educate police officers in the United States. And it came about, uh, we're heading into our fifth year, and it came about, you know, with my career as a police officer, I attended three different training academies, as you mentioned the intro, in Ohio, South Carolina, and Indiana. And even early on, I was able to recognize that you know I, I was woefully unprepared uh, for a lot of the a lot of what my job was and that there was a, a clear disconnection from what I was being trained and what the what, what, what the realities of the job were. and uh, and I'll, I'll I'll talk a little bit you know about that more later about uh, things like fear-based training and uh, you know this kind of warrior training. Uh, so, um, again, a little bit over four years ago, I, I started the Institute because one of the things that I recognized is, is that when we see incidences of deadly use of force cases, uh, especially when it's revolving around individuals who are unarmed or for which there was a clear alternative for how a situation could have been handled without use of force, I, I, I recall you know, the legal principle that, you know, police officers' actions are justified, uh, both legally and, and, you know, and I would say, you know, morally, that it's justified based around what their training and experience is. And, and my view is, is that it doesn't matter what job we have, right? I mean, whether you're a journalist or, you know, a CEO or a janitor is how we're trained is central to how we'll end up. Performing, and so uh, I started the institute with a couple of things in mind is one is is that we needed to relook at training right the the training models in the United States have really never been fundamentally changed is what really kind of one big intersection in the late 1950s and early 60s when militarization and SWAT training was introduced. But for the most part, you know, we've added a few hours here and a few hours there, maybe, you know, some changes in technology or classes like mental health response or implicit bias. But for the most part, the training um, curriculum, despite its expansion on some hours, has been pretty static. So I knew that number one is is that we needed to just kind of have this reexamination of what would police training be in the 21st century if we updated the curriculum. But in order to do that, um, we had to do a couple of things. And first and foremost is research. We had to really have a good understanding of what is the state of police training in the United States. And we identified three really major areas. First is untrained police officers. So, so we have police officers who are working today in 37 states, which allow the police to be employed, to work autonomously with uh you know, uh, full powers of arrest, full powers to use deadly force prior to going to the training academy. And this is insane uh, in our view, right? I mean, that would be like you going to the doctor uh, or going to the hospital and the nurse going like, I'm going to nursing school next year, right? I mean, if you live or you're visiting in one of these 37 states, it means that if you call 911 or if you're being pulled over by the police or you have a police interaction, the reality is, is that, you don't know if that officer has even been trained they go through what's called a pre-basic training, which is, you know, maybe a week or two uh, which is largely around learning firearms uh, a little bit on the law, but then they have maybe up to a year, some States it's two years uh, for which they can go to the Academy. So, this is a clear problem in our view. Is is that that there should just you know not be an instance for which a, a police officer uh, is is dealing with the public or is even being asked to right? I mean, because one of the things, if I can back up just a second, I think it's important that we talk about while we are an advocacy organization, you know, seeking reform, this isn't one-sided. You know, these issues in police training impact the police as well, which I'll talk about a little bit more. But as an example with the untrained officers, right, we have had a few instances where there's been deadly use of force cases. But the most recent event was a South Carolina police officer last year who was killed uh, on a traffic stop who had not been to the academy yet. So Thankfully, the legislators in South Carolina are looking about closing that loophole, so we, we hope they will, and others follow suit. Uh, the second is, is that police officers, uh, generally speaking, just aren't trained long enough. And uh, so I, I always share this anecdote, is, is that I, I learned this on a date with a hairstylist when I was down in South Carolina, and she was telling me, about what was required of her from a training perspective and what was required on a continued basis to maintain a cosmetology license. And I, I, I sat with you know my mouth open over my salad because I was shocked that what she was describing to me, and by that time I had been to two academies and still had not had to complete the same amount of training that she did to be a cosmetologist. Now, we, we've done further research in this, uh, and we know that, A, South Carolina isn't anecdotal. Uh, this is the case in every single state in the United States. Cosmetologists or from a regulatory labor outlined by the state is is that uh, they're, they're required more training. But this is also plumbers and electricians, uh, nursing uh, a couple of states, even massage therapists. Um, so there's a clear dis- disconnect when, when we look at this as a labor regulation about certification from the state, how long should their training be? And so we see that on average anywhere from six to eight months is the average what uh, what police officers are, are required. Now, the, to add on to this um, is is that when we look at our international counterparts, Um, And the Institute has looked at over 100 nations uh, across the globe. We uh, only have three countries for which uh, require less training than us. And that is Iraq and Afghanistan, for which we train their police officers, and the third is Papua New Guinea. So when we look at, you know, Australia, New Zealand, you know, we're talking about a four-year program, uh, Germany's, you know, uh, three-year program, across the Nordic countries are four-year programs. There is just simply not enough time and, and six or eight months to train over over 50 different topic areas that officers have to learn and to put this in perspective, is like I always give the example about law, right? Is It's in their name, law enforcement. So it's the thing we would think that they would be spending the most amount of time on. So police officers are given just a little bit over about a week and a half of training relative to law on average. So a week and a half, that requires them to learn constitutional law federal criminal law, federal transportation law, state criminal law, state transportation law, local laws and ordinance, and civil liability and torts. there's just no way that somebody can adequately understand the law in a week and a half period. When we see attorneys, you know, having to spend years to be able to get this concept, I'm not saying that every police officer should be an an attorney, but you would think that um, when we look at the primary responsibility of police, to be law enforcement that that this would be um, they would be given the time to be able to adequately be able to learn even even just the basics of law, and so the third point uh, that we look at is is that what we believe is is the wrong focus on training. So when we look when we do a breakdown on what police officers are focusing on in their training. Uh, if we if we include physical fitness, which arguably is about use of force, um, that means that about a third of their training is focusing around force. Primarily, uh, this is on either the prevention of being killed by homicide, or the utilization of deadly use of force, or maybe even some less than lethal weaponry. Now. The issue becomes, and we all you know, want officers to be protected, of course, but the, the issue becomes is that this becomes the overarching emphasis of what their training is. So if we look at a third of the training to be around use of force, but we're only spending maybe eight hours on de-escalation or four to six hours on alternatives to arrest, then there's just an enormous imbalance the other really big issue is is that uh this is not what is most dangerous to police officers so uh when when we look at how police officers die in the united states um and i always you know say take a second and just imagine in your head how many police officers you think what your guess would be um may die by homicide each year um, the answer is around 50, um, uh, give or take a few. Now, don't get me wrong. 50 is too many, right? And it's 50 too many. But we see an equal number of of deaths by traffic accidents. Uh, but officers are only given about a week's worth of training on emergency vehicle operations. They're three to five times more likely to kill themselves than to be killed by someone else, though they... Most get no training on self-care or identification of PTSD or depression, and if they do, it's generally no more than a day. Two, I think, is the most I've ever seen. If we look at last year and probably this year as well, it's heading in that direction. This year as well, but last year, uh, COVID killed more police officers than all other causes combined. But they're, you know, you know, the, 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 there's no extensive training on, on on reducing the transmission, you know, of a deadly disease. So not only do we have this third of training that's going to use of force, and this was something that was in my experiences, is that it's also integrated in almost every other area of the training. And the example that I give is with report writing, right? So officers are taught how to fill out the boxes, right? What questions to ask, what information is needed in order to complete a successful report, But simultaneously, they're also being taught how to stand, right, is make sure that you stand with your, you know, right side or your strong side pivoted backwards. Be careful about handing uh, an ink pen, you know, to someone because they might jab it in your eye or jab it in your neck, for which, you know, maybe in a jail setting that's happened, but I know of no circumstance that that's ever happened, you know, in a regular patrol function. So, when, when there is this overarching emphasis and you watch video after video of police officers being killed or, you know, being seriously injured. And then we have this kind of militarized regiment that's inside of the training. You know, my, my line is, is that, you know, if we train them like soldiers, dress them like soldiers and equip them like soldiers, then then we can only expect them to behave like soldiers. And so uh, our view is, is that as we re-examine what the curriculum needs to be, is, is that, yes, officers need to spend a lot of time in learning about how to protect themselves from homicide, of course, but they also need to learn about how not to kill themselves or how to deal with with uh, the stresses uh, that that um, you know policing comes with, and learn balance on things like de escalation or um, uh, or dealing with the community.
0: So there's a ton there that <clears throat> I am interested in <clears throat> scratching at, but I guess you know wh- one of the things that strikes me listening to you as a former police officer, I'm I can't help but wonder. I mean, what what is what's the response like, you know, if a cop or someone who's responsible for training police officers was maybe sitting in the room with us right now, would they agree with you about this stuff? I mean, what's your experience like when you go to police departments? Are they saying, you know what, you're right, we can do a little bit better? Is there momentum or energy for that? Or is there pushback on this as, you know, being framing the police in a really negative light?
1: There's two camps, um, and I wouldn't say that they're equal. I would say that the vast majority would be in some agreement or, or largely be in agreement with me. I think that normally we're... Where there may be some split is around the idea uh, about um, you know this warrior versus guardian training, right? Is is that you know a lot of especially diehard officers you know believe that this militaristic approach is what is keeping police officers safe, this, despite there's no evidence of it that we have been able to find that um, you know police departments that have more what is called stress training or more tactical training um, or militarized, I'm sorry, not tactical. A- actually, makes officers, you know, any more safer than those that are more academically driven. Now, that being said, is is that um, I recognize, you know, th- what their concern is. However, one of the things that I would say is is that, uh, you know, w- w- we we can dispute a little bit about um, uh, 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 about what exactly the curriculum needs to be a focus on, but I get no pushback on the need for for more training, right? The problem is, and this is our primary issue, so like when I'm asked about why is it that cosmetologists get more training than the police, it's very simple. The cosmetologists aren't being trained by the state, right? This is a fiduciary issue. This is is a budgeting problem. And unfortunately, one of the areas that gets hit very often, so like when we talk about defund the police... What often gets hit are training programs, and so what, what I hear more than anything is from police chiefs or, or academy commanders or down to just the instructor level is, yeah, they, they, they want to do more. They, they want to have more training or be able to expand the existing training that they have. They just simply can't afford it, and there's not a lot of political will, unfortunately, uh, to push to make that happen, so our solution is simple: is is that what we believe is is that we need to decouple police training away from the state, away from it being tax funded, paid um, training programs, and 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 this exists in law enforcement already. When we look at the DA's office or prosecutor's office, if I want to be a DA uh i I don't go apply for you know to the county of los angeles and say hey i want to be a da and they say great and i'm going to send you to your undergrad and then send you to law school and then you know and pay you during that time of course not i have a responsibility to go get my education they may have programs like tuition reimbursement or you know some sort of benefit that that allows me to recoup some of that cost but it isn't the responsibility of taxpayers right to pay for to pay for my education and when we look at public safety police and fire are the only two professions that i'm aware of at least that the state has a responsibility and or taxpayers when i say the state i mean us right e- each one of us as taxpayers have a responsibility to pay for so if we decouple this and make it you know uh, we'd like to see it a bachelor's degree program, but at minimum, you know, a two-year associate's degree program for which the curriculum can be expanded and doesn't have constraints for taxpayer f- funding, then then we can look at this um, and have an honest assessment about how do we need to expand it without the concern about whether or not a politician is going to sign onto it or not because, um, you know, there, there's a, you know, th- th- this might require some sort of appropriations.
0: I want to say this back to you. I think this is really interesting and I want to make sure I understand correctly. But the vision that you're sort of hoping for is one where a police officer, an aspiring police officer is going to a university that is providing police specific training, getting a degree in, you know, policing, quote unquote, paying their own money, two to four year degree, the same way we structure something like law or teaching or whatever, and then they are going to apply at departments with that degree and having a certain kind of degree like that is going to be necessary in order to be hired at this department.
1: Exactly. And so the major pushback that we hear about this is that, um, is this going to reduce recruitment, uh, especially among people who you know, may be struggling a little more on the socioeconomic ladder? And, Here's what we know, what we know about college educated police officers, just any college degree, not even necessarily college education for criminal justice. But what we know is, is that folks who have a college degree as police officers perform better and they stay on the job longer. There's less um, uh, deadly use of force instances. Uh, There is um, less civil liability. Um, There's less criminality inside of uh, policing. And so there becomes a huge savings to the state to, to be to to transfer this that allows them then to have programs like tuition reimbursement or scholarships, for which that they can give, uh, especially folks that that may have um, uh, you know some challenges paying for college otherwise. A professor at Cal State University, Christian Gardner, did some work. Dr. Christine Dark Gardner did some work on this about examining. You know, did recruitment levels drop when there was requirements uh, for college education? And the answer is no, it doesn't. What it does is it expands the pool. So I hear this all the time. Um, In fact, I was on a panel just recently in which a union representative said, you know, I can barely get folks now. So, you know, adding a college degree on top of that is going to make it even harder well, that may be true based on the pool of candidates that they have now, based around what the job is now, right? If and the reality is, is that not all, but many police departments, if you look at their recruiting pages, many of them look more militaristic than the Army's um, you know, uh, hiring pages, and so that's who you're attracting, right? And I understand the pushback from police officers. When you know when there's outcry about their performance, they're doing what they were hired to do, right? Uh, they were doing they, they're in many regards. In many regards, they're doing exactly as they were trained to do, and then there there becomes this confusion as to, oh, wait a minute, you know, I signed up on a website for which showed me in military tactical gear, maybe showing me rappelling out of a helicopter. Was a website that I saw just recently. Um, uh, So that's what they're signing up for. But if we professionalize policing, you know, as an educated career for which they're given the ample time to be able to understand the complexities of criminal behavior, why does crime exist? What are the historical problems that uh, policing has had uh, within the community, especially communities of color, um, balanced? with learning about de-escalation, about dealing with people in mental health crisis, um, then I think that then that is going to bring about a whole new pool of people that will ease recruiting problems.
0: How did you experience this as an officer? I'm curious. I mean, I imagine that you witnessed some of these issues firsthand and that is what inspired you to sort of pursue this work, I, I don't know if there's like a story or two that comes to mind for you that kind of illustrates some of the issues that you are trying to address now. But I'm curious to hear, you know, from your on the ground firsthand experience, because I write and read about this issue a lot, but I don't I don't hear from police officers a ton about, you know, uh, critical reflection of their time on the forest, in my experience.
1: Uh, so what one of the things I, I I think is important is is that um because I do have criticisms of of American policing and and where we are at today uh that some have it you know has gotten worse even since you know my time i think I've been out of this for about 12 or 13 years uh, in the public sector but but in the private sector and, and I, I think it's important first and foremost to acknowledge that we are asking police officers to run towards danger for which the rest of us are running away from, right? So I never want to minimize, you know, when we see mass shootings like we did um, in Indianapolis, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, that meant a team of officers had to run towards a situation for which somebody was just slaughtering other human beings, right? So I think that, you know, in reflection is, yes, it was important for me to to understand. And it's important today to recognize those officers who continue to do those things. However, the first story that I will share that really, you know, I I, I see in hindsight, especially was the level of fear that I had as a police officer, especially in the first couple of years. Right. And I'm not exaggerating as, as I tell this story. This is this is verbatim exactly what happened. Daily. I worked overnights for the most part. Daily, I would, on my drive home, I would get about halfway home and I would flip U-turns in the road or I would turn down side streets or dead ends or residential areas that were off the beaten path because I was told that the bad guy, right, quote unquote, the bad guy, um, would follow me home and kill me, kill my family. You know, there's an underpinning of stress that goes along with this idea that at any second uh someone is out to murder me Now you know we know that um i don't i I'm, i don 't believe that policing even either they didn 't make it into the top ten of jobs for which uh, are killed by homicide uh, on the job uh if they did it was really close uh, around the tenth but it is this, There was just this constant refrain, constantly of, of you know conversations, trainings, uh, debriefings that all circled around this idea that at any moment um, you can be murdered. Now, and the story about and I did this you know kind of U-turn for a couple of years. You know, the first couple of years of my career, and I've since learned that uh, th- there's been no officer. For which this has happened there's been police officers who've been killed at their homes but not because you know someone followed them at the end of their shift to their house to kill them so i saw pretty you know early and i especially see it now is is where there's this emphasis of training on what was possible versus what was probable and then when when we examine what's possible well it's endless right i mean there, there, there's an endless possibility of ways that somebody could die um or die, die by homicide uh, the other issue is, um, and I, I wrote an op-ed that uh, that was published on Huffington Post a couple of years, you can still uh, Google it and, and find it, called I Was a Racist Cop. Um, and a lot of this was, you know, uh, not at the time that I was doing the work, but in reflection that I really realized that the emphasis for which uh, my job was 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 not on prevention of crime which there's really not a lot of evidence that the police prevent a whole lot of crime some by you know visibility but other than that uh, modern policing today doesn't doesn't really prevent crime but we didn't really do much of anything in the way of of crime prevention we did very little in the way of investigating crimes and i now know like you know there's 500,000 literally 500,000 unsolved homicides in the united states uh we see mer- or we see sexual assault clearance rates. Uh, Chicago uh, released their data last year that was like less than 10%. We see on average uh, only 60% clearance rates. The, there's not a class that you could take for which you're going to pass at 60%, right? So what instead there was, and what I described about the, you know this, this intersectionality of racism inside of the criminal justice system was this kind of proactive policing where our focus really was on petty events and, um, and and a lot of, you know, policing of poverty, right. Where we were pulling over poor people because poor people are most likely to have a suspended license or, you know, maybe an unpaid traffic ticket. And so therefore they have a warrant. I started out uh, in Ohio at a department um, with five police officers, right. Or I, I, the department doesn't even exist anymore. They've, they've since, uh, disbanded but uh, and I always laugh and say that my sergeant what uh, was also the school bus driver right so he had you know a dual job there was no need for a police department in that town right so we would go days without one single call for service so what our job was was you know this proactive policing of which were really kind of fishing expeditions of pretextual stops, pulling somebody over for a headlight violation or, you know, some sort of minor event in hopes of, you know, maybe finding some dope or, uh, you know, someone with a suspended license or a warrant or something like that. And so as I progressed through my career, uh, the very last agency that I worked for in Indiana uh, was, I think, either the largest or second largest in the state. And while there were certainly more calls for service, it still, for the most part, was about the same thing. Right. Is, is that uh, the emphasis overwhelmingly was on petty crimes, uh, uh, emphasis on property crimes, minor property crimes like theft or vandalism, quality of life policing, which is like dealing with panhandling or homelessness. Uh the LA Times, I think, recently did a study uh, of 911 calls here in LA and and found that less than 10% of what police officers are responding to are crimes in progress uh, or violent crime. So that means 90% of the calls for service that they're doing are things for which, you know, aren't uh, you know, chasing the bad guy or, you know, solving rapes or murders, but dealing with, you know, um, whether or not someone is a nuisance for standing in front of the 7-Eleven, you know, begging for change or whether or not someone's sleeping on a sidewalk and those kinds of things.
0: Let's talk about that 10%, though, that is, I, I mean, you know, I, I mentioned to you before we got on the show that I had Alex Vitali on a couple of weeks ago, and he talks a lot about the abolition of police. And you said, and I'm hearing a little bit of it now talking to you that You know, oddly enough, there is this there are intersections for, you know, where you guys land on this. I'm interested in what role you think police should play in society. I mean, I guess that that question sort of has the pretext that you don't think that we should abolish the police. Um, And maybe you can correct me on that uh, if I'm wrong. But I'm I'm curious, like, you know, what's the vision for you? In terms of why we keep police around and what we want them to be doing,
1: so I, I, um, I'm not an abolitionist. Um, I, I mean, I think in a utopian circumstance, uh, yeah, that would be great if we could handle things, you know, non-punitive.ly And, and maybe this is something from a you know really long term perspective that. That, you know, we, we can chip away at the edges on some of the police's role in our society. And this is where Alex and I do agree. I think that, I think we need to reduce the thumbprint of policing in a handful of different areas, right? I, I, I don't think police uh, police have a role in schools. I think we need to end the war on drugs um, and treat uh, drug addiction as, as what it is, a public health crisis. It's a failed policy. It's a racist policy. It's never worked. It's never going to work. I believe that we need to do reinvestment in the, in the community. Um, you know, we know that the three predictors of crime um, is poverty, education, and mental health. So these are all things that are preventable. Uh, I, Isaac, when uh, you asked earlier, like what are some of the things that, you know, I noticed when, when I was in my very first academy, a instructor said, whatever illusions you have about policing, dismiss them because what you really do is deal with the three Ds, the drunk, the drugged and the deranged and, uh, you know, not not the most politically correct term today, but his point was probably about the most accurate depiction of policing that I ever, uh, uh, I've ever i ever heard. But one of the things, even at a time when I was far more conservative than I am today, that struck me about that is that these are all issues that we can get ahead of, right? We can get ahead of, of addiction issues. We can get ahead of, of mental health problems not we're not going to solve them but we can mitigate them for sure and what we know and you know we've done this for 40 years now is is that what we've done regardless of where you sit on the war on drugs the one thing we have to agree on is it hasn't worked right now i'm not advocating that we have you know Randy's cocaine store you know at the corner but i also don't think that locking up an addict makes the community safer or has a net positive impact on uh, on our society when I hear about defunding i I don't know I, I mean when i when I just see the raw numbers of policing you know like the budgets of you know a billion dollars or you know one and a half billion dollars, I think is in New York, you know that seems startling to me but but my issue is more about allocation right is what is the priorities of the police department and so i I'll give two examples about here in l a county right there's twenty five thousand unsolved murders here in l a county right but we see, uh, or I'll give three examples. We'll see one, our helicopters flying around, which are about 10 grand an hour. That that doesn't seem like a good use of funding. We see um, detectives, uh, property crimes detectives who are setting up bicycles, right? Chaining them to um, a pole in a poor area and then doing surveillance to see who comes and steals it. Right? I don't think that's a good use of, uh, of funding. Uh, And then the third, I just, in fact, I just saw a video about this the other day. And this is the second time I've seen this of where there's these sting operations near like bar areas where an Uber driver or a Lyft driver will drop someone off. And these undercover officers will run up and say, hey, I forgot my phone. Will you give me a ride home and uh, I'll just pay you cash? And then when the Uber driver says yes, then they bust them for the violation of taxi regulations. Now, uh, here's what I say. Could you imagine that your wife or your husband or your mom or dad or your child was murdered and that murder has gone unsolved and you see things like this? You see that the police have said this is what our priority is when we're spending 10, 12, maybe 15% tops on investigating crimes and the rest is this silly nonsense, right? I just don't think that, um, so when I, when, when I talk about abolishing police, I don't care if there's five times the amount of police, if, if they're investigating crimes, if they're truly bringing justice to you know, people who are victims of crime. My dad always said to me, you know, don't put more on your plate until you finish what you have. So the idea that you know, we're out chaining a bicycle up to a, to a pole to see who's going to steal it, when we probably have a clearance rate of 30% of all other property crimes anyway, just, just seems nonsensical to me, yet alone the abysmal um, violent crime clearance rates.
0: So, I mean, when you say it like this, it's all, I mean, I, again, and I felt this way talking to Alex too and reading his book. I mean, it strikes me as so obvious and I asked him this question uh, and I'll ask you the same. I mean, then, then why, like, why is it the way that it is? I mean, what the hell are we doing? You know, what, what, why? When you, you're in LA County, why isn't the mayor sitting down with your organization to talk about how to change policing? What, what's the holdup? You know, if if you're saying that a lot of police agree about how we need to change the training all these things are there. I mean, is it just the culture war? Is it the politics of it? I mean, what what's going on?
1: Well, well the answer is yes. <laughs> to to each of those, um, there's pushback from the unions, of course. There is a lack of imagination, right? Um, I, I read something on Twitter not too long ago, and I, I wish I knew it was so that I could I give them credit because I cite it quite often, but someone said, you know, when we talk about reimagining public safety, think of this. Think about driving down the road and you have a taillight out, right? Instead of an armed police officer pulling you over to write you a punitive citation, for which, you know, you may not even be able to afford to pay, which is going to create this spiral effect, right, of, uh, you know, an unpaid ticket, a suspended license, you might lose your job, you got on and on and on. Is what if we had a highway worker? Help you change the bulb, right? Doesn't doesn't that solve it? And so I feel uh, really good that we're having these conversations about this now. Where you know Alex and I probably separate is is that I think that he sees where that this can be done in much broader uh, ways where I don't. I mean, I still think that, you know, when we talk about like response of uh, of individuals with mental health crisis, I, I think that the police is always going to have a role with that because very often, or, you know, may, maybe not proportionally very often, but d- by wrong number, very often, you know, these are folks who may be violent. So w- when we talk about like, let's stop traffic stops, as an example, you know, we saw Dante Wright, You know, that event started over an expired license plate. If the police themselves very often push back on this idea that, hey, why don't you just focus on moving violations? right? And stop, you know, headlight violations, expired tags, these kinds of things, because they view that as, no pun intended, but kind of handcuffing them and being able to do the work that they are used to doing, which, you know, they use these for the most part, they're pretextual stops, right? Yeah, you might need to let someone know their tags are expired or headlights out, but the reality is, as most police officers will tell you, that, you know, most of these kinds of stops, not all, but most of them are really because they want to see if somebody has a warrant or has a gun or has dope or you know a spent license or whatever it may be. So when we propose the idea and I, and there's a few departments that are picking up on this, but when we propose the, propose the idea of you know that we just need to stop or limit this interaction and this is just in one one particular area uh then then they feel a little shackled about whether or not um are able to perform their job. The other thing too is, is that, you know, uh, w- w- we have a deficit of the acceptance of scientific consensus sometimes in policing as well. Like when we talk about the war on drugs, as an example, I've uh, been a part of an organization. It was formerly called LEAP law enforcement against prohibition, which is a uh, collection of police officers or former police officers who are against the war on drugs. Uh, you know, like I said earlier, pretty much any officer would agree that this is a failed policy. Um, but because it's such a, an intricate part of their day-to-day job, then it's very difficult for them to see a world for which that that you know everything's not just going to go to hell if they're not out enforcing somebody with a you know little small bag of heroin in their pocket. Right? It's almost like kind of the zero sum of either. You know uh, if we 're not out out arresting you know someone with a little bit of dope then uh then that means that you know simultaneously we're advocating for you know again randy 's cocaine store and, and and that's not true now the other reality is is which we saw in Ferguson, Missouri, but that's you know a a microcosm of a lot of jurisdictions in the United States is the current model of policing is good money, right? You know, fine generation, court cost, uh, that employs a lot of people, that uh, keeps a lot of budgets flowing. And, And not just directly in the institution itself, but, you know, there's a lot of residual, you know, when we look at uh, CCA and the GEO Group. These are two private prisons in the United States, right? If you remember a few years back in Arizona, there was the Show Me Your Papers bill. I think it was AB five, is what it was called, right? That was heavily pushed by you know two for profit private prisons. And not that I think private prisons, I I think they're problematic, but I don't think that they're a major problem in our justice system. So we then now have outside influence of people who are wanting to, you know, do tough on crime or keep things kind of status quo. Um, but what I would say, you know, especially relative to training, is what you know. Without going through all of the points again, is exactly what I mentioned earlier. Is is that while it continues to be a responsibility to the taxpayer, then there's always going to be resistance. Got it. But let me add one more thing. Is um, because some of this is cyclical. Is is that we have to also understand that tough on crime has always been a big payoff politically uh, in the United States. Now, it isn't as much as it once was, but used to. You know, someone like Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, the DA, or uh, George Gascon here in Los Angeles, who's talking about ending mandatory minimum sentencing or enhancements. I mean, they're getting huge blowback, even at a time where, you know, uh, arguably uh, the, the entire nation knows that we need to have some reforms. When that used, to, even the struggles that they have now, that would have just been absolutely, uh, you know, a deal breaker. They would have never been able to have the conversations of saying, "Okay, locking up someone for a little bit of dope um, is, is that the right path?" Because then they would be viewed as soft on crime, and they'd never get elected or reelected.
0: So I guess with with all of that being said, I mean, where where do you think we are in this right now? I mean, what's What's in front of you guys? What are you focused on as sort of like, you know, the the next couple steps?
1: What, what I will say is, is that the first we have to accept this is not going to be a fast process. And I think this is one of the problems that I have with the Abolish uh, movement is, is that it assumes, and um, and I don't mean that in a condescending way, I'm, I'm sure the advocates in this know that it's, it's an uphill battle, but but the platform assumes, not the individuals, assumes that we can flip this around pretty quickly. And, and in some areas we can. And so like I mentioned earlier, you know, there's 18,000 agencies in the United States. Half of those uh, are departments less than 10 people. Right. Uh, so if, 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 if I were to look at like abolishment as an example, that's probably where I would start. Right. Is do we need all these little tiny uh, departments for which their major function is, is revenue generation? from a training perspective is, is that, you know, we of course want to, uh, work and we're in the midst of a campaign to, uh, we want a federal prohibition actually, uh, against untrained police officers being able to work. I mean, again, it's, it's just absurd and the arguments for it, um, hold no water. Um, I, I, I think, there is no one on this planet who had the choice of an untrained police officer or a trained police officer to show show up when you call nine one one. Someone's gonna pick an untrained officer, including, you know, the police chiefs or sheriffs who who are advocating to to be able to keep this loophole. For us is is that, so a lot of our work is research-based now uh, because, again, because this has never really been re-examined. And in, in some, reg- some areas we knew would take a while, in some areas we didn't realize the length of time that it would take because there was either a lack of data or, you know, the complexities th- that we want to make sure that we consider. So our organization, we have what is um, called a community impact team, and so one of the things that we want to make sure is, is that when we sit down and have a curriculum recommendation, as an example, that number one, it's, it's science-based, it's, it's data-driven, but number two is, is that we want to make sure that anyone who could be impacted by this, which is everyone, right, is, is that this is an area that impacts all of us because we all rely on this in our system, um, that they have a seat at the table, right, not all the seats one seat doesn't you know there's not one that gets more seats than the other but everyone has a voice to be able to examine this and so we have a very large group that you know when we say okay you know does implicit bias training work as an example it's one of the things that that we're looking at and our early information is it doesn't not not in its current form but then we have to explore further to say okay maybe this eight-hour class of implicit bias training isn't working. Uh, NYPD did a report recently, you know, showing that they didn't see any any meaningful change um, in officer behavior after they took implicit bias training. But what if it was a 40-hour class, right? Or what if it was a month long as part of, you know, a college curriculum course? What, would it matter then? And so, so we have research programs such as that. We have uh, research, uh, ongoing research right now, uh, which is a longitudinal study on measuring what are police officers' perceptions of threat. And again, you know, as I mentioned at the earlier onset of the show, is, is that we see that officers have a heightened uh, belief of how many police officers are killed every year or what circumstances for which police officers are, are involved in when, when they do encounter um, you know, a violent response. Um, but, but, but we're also looking at things of like a program that we have, what's called greater danger is, is that how do we reduce police violence or I'm sorry, police suicides, right? How do we tackle this issue with substance abuse and alcoholism and domestic violence that we know are, is rampant inside of, uh, of policing and is there training components for which we can counter some of this? You know, of course I, I believe yes, because I think that most, most everything can have a training, uh, an, an influence from from training. The challenge that we face, though, is, is that, you know, someone emailed me the other day and said, hey, uh, remember, uh, culture eats training for lunch. And I, I don't disagree with, with what he said. So we have to have buy-in from uh, from the politicians. We have to have buy-in for, from the police administrations through policy. What what I would say is is that there is a greater optimism today than than at least I've had in in my lifetime, um, you know. So you know, from the from the ashes of the horrible events around George Floyd's death, is, is that I think um, you know this has reawakened a conversation uh, uh, about training, and, and and one of the big issues that we face about training is is that. This has been a broken promise for decades and decades and decades right anytime you know from we go back to Rodney King right is is that you know immediately out of the gate we have police you know administrators saying well we'll, we'll do better in training we'll do different in training and the reality is is that they they nibbled around the edges but the, it just hasn't been changed and so uh, for us is is that um, in our our major program that, uh, that we're conducting, you know, we're probably a few more years out is a 21st century curriculum recommendation that says here is a scientific-backed, uh, data-driven curriculum for which, uh, w- which we know that works either from uh, current experiences here in the U.S. or perhaps, you know, in, um, you know a, one of our international counterparts have been able to, to utilize it effectively.
0: Randy, if people want to keep an eye on your work and follow some of this stuff, where's the best place to do it? Sure. Our, our
1: website is uh, trainingreform.org, and uh, we're on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and uh, Instagram, um, and it's at Reform on each of, uh, each of those platforms as well.
0: All right. Randy Shrewsbury, the current executive director of the Institute for Criminal Justice Training Reform. Randy, thank you so much for the time. I appreciate you coming on.
1: Thank you, Isaac. I appreciate it today's podcast
0: was produced by tangle media in partnership with our friends over at imposter radio if you enjoyed the podcast be sure to give it a five-star rating share it with your friends and go check out retangle.com for more